This is Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey, everybody. I'm just here to kick things off this week. If you've been listening to our podcast regularly, then you heard that Andy was scheduled to go to Europe this summer. Uh, He did make it there. And today's episode comes from an interview he did on location at Cambridge University. I'm officially jealous. So with that, I'll get out of the way and I'll let Andy take it away from here. Uh, welcome to the Apologetics Canada podcast. It's good to have you with us. Uh, my name is Andy Steiger, and I am actually on location here in Cambridge and have the uh, immense privilege to get an interview Peter J. Williams on his new book. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Now, you've got an impressive list of accomplishments. You are the principal of Tyndale House uh, here in Cambridge. Mm-hmm which is one of the leading institutes for biblical research. And in fact, we should give a plug out. There is a wonderful conference that takes place each year. And what's, what's that conference called? And what's well, it's the, the Tyndale Fellowship, which is, so we've got a, a body of 360 associated uh, scholars uh, who, and they, they come together uh, each year for study groups. And so around the end of June, beginning of July in Cambridge. So that's something that anybody can come out to. And in fact, you can even submit a paper to, to Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, scholars bouncing ideas off each other. It's a very, very friendly conference. But if you want to find a lot of very bright evangelicals discussing the Bible, philosophy, history, and so on, uh, that's going on. That's originally what I was going to come here for, but I'm actually at just down the road from here at, at Crash presenting there on the subject of AI and philosophy. I'm probably one of the only Christians there. Actually, no, I think I'm, there's two of us <laughs> that are there presenting uh, this week. Now, you were previously uh, a senior lecturer in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen, which uh, is some of my home turf. I'm mm-hmm. not home turf, but where I've been studying for mm-hmm. the last couple of years. Uh, what did you do there and what did you teach? So, I was, uh, well, teaching New Testament. I supervised PhDs, but I also, you know, taught the Gospels, Paul, well, all sorts of things that, you know, you do in the New Testament. I was just there for four years, but it was a very good time. What brought you to Cambridge? So, Tinder House uh, was what brought me. I mean, I'd studied here previously during my PhD, and it really is a remarkable institution. It's a place where we don't do courses, but people do research at the doctoral level or above, and it's trying to lead global evangelical scholarship. I don't think there's any greater concentration of uh, evangelical biblical scholars in the world. I mean, we have typically about 50 here on site at any one time. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's pretty significant. And so is the opportunity to lead that. You're also the chair of the International Greek New Testament Project. Can you just tell me a little bit what, about what that project is? So that project's been going for a long time. Uh, we're not quite a century, but getting close. Uh, and it's uh, basically dozens and historically hundreds of 
people working together collaboratively to build big projects on the text of the Greek New Testament. So an edition of Luke uh, was done a while ago, and for the last 30 years, people have been working on an edition of John. And the thing uh, that's significant is not just the final product of where you can read the Greek text of John, which obviously you can do in lots of other ways, but actually it's gathering all of the manuscripts and transcribing them doubly and triply and making sure that you can cross-check everything and all of the early translations and correlating all the information. So that if you actually want information, let's say, on the Gospel of John and its manuscripts, there will be no better place. In fact, even now, there is no better place than to go to our johannes.com website to get that, and then editions of Paul are being prepared and so on. So this is it's a very major collaborative project, particularly uh, Europe and the USA. On top of that, you're also a member of the ESV Translation Oversight Committee. Mm-hmm. What's involved with being on a committee like that, just out of curiosity? So, um, the ESV committee obviously met before 2001 when the ESV was first released. I wasn't on it at the time, so that was the big work to get the ESV started. But since then, it's been meeting about every five years and doing lighter revisions on it. And so... What happens is uh, you prepare before you meet together and you submit changes that you think that should be made or other, or you review other people's suggested uh, changes and you all make your comments beforehand. And then with everyone's comments already listed in big folders, <laughs> you then meet together for a week. But the idea is you meet together having all done your homework on all the passages you're going to discuss and you discuss and you vote and you make your case for this wording or that wording and you you have to weigh everything from how this is going to sound, what you have had in the past to what different ways it could be read, you know, different scholarly probabilities, but also the actual flow of a translation. So you have many factors to consider and you weigh them. One of the factors I've always wondered about with regards to translation is copyright issues, mm-hmm. which is kind of yeah, sure. which is kind of interesting when you're dealing with the Bible that that there could be copyright issues and whether or not that handicaps you in translating it. And so, what I would mean for maybe the listener is so if if the NIV has translated maybe a verse in a specific way, you know, what kind of flexibility does the ESV have in translating it? Yeah, I've I've never known a situation where we felt we ought to change different wording or um, avoid a particular turn of phrase because another translation already had it. I think there are enough differences between translations. There's plenty of space. Of course, these things aren't particularly tried legally, but particularly when you've got something like the ESV, which is trying on the whole to be literal, it's inevitably going to have lots of overlap with the NASB, the New King James, and other such translations, which are trying some of the same things. So uh, you can't exactly squabble over over words. You know, uh, no one's got a copyright on the standard forms of the Lord's Prayer or anything like that. Um, so I, I think you just try and translate and uh, let the publishers worry about copyright. That makes sense. I'm glad to hear that, actually. Well, I'm very excited to meet with you. Really looking forward to talking about your new book. I've heard lots about it. Uh, lots of different friends and, and uh, different conferences I've been at. I've heard of this book uh, a number of times called Can We Trust the Gospels? And so after I had heard it talk so highly of 
I thought, man, it'd be great to talk with you. So glad that we could meet. Now, before we jump into this book and, uh, and discuss uh, some of the stuff that you've written there and just encourage listeners to check this book out, I, I first want to begin by asking, what got you into this field? You know, we've talked about a number of the projects you're involved with and stuff that you've done, but, but I mean, what actually led to you getting in, involved in uh, New Testament studies? Well, I mean, I've dotted around in various things. I mean, I actually did a PhD on the Syriac version version of first kings so you know and where did you do that I, I, I did that here in cambridge and so i definitely thought i'd wanted to be an old testament scholar and uh, the reason i became a new testament scholar is actually um there was no other job <laughs> it really was uh, this temporary post came up in aberdeen i didn't have any other irons in the fire and you know when you got a temporary post, it's easier to get. Yeah, you know the the, the fewer people apply and so on. So I, I applied for a I think a ten month post in Aberdeen. But it just so happened that when I applied, my publication record was very strong in the way that the UK counts publications because they actually count them by time periods. And so I was applying in two thousand and three. And right in 2003, my resume looked great for publications because I had nearly two books out in that period, one in 2001, one in 2003. And so, you know, very quickly, Aberdeen asked me to be permanent. And so I had a permanent job in New Testament without a PhD in New Testament. I'd been doing Aramaic. I'd, I edited a book related to New Testament because it had been a feshrift, um, something in honor of, of someone. But so, so there I was, and you know, I learnt um, in at the deep end. Uh, but after that, that has actually set me on a course of doing New Testament studies alongside Old Testament. I'm, I'm still passionate about both. Now, in this book, can we trust the Gospels? You're very uh, specific about the word trust. Now, can you tease that out? Why, why you specifically chose that word? And uh, as you're teasing that out, also just what led you to write this book? Yeah, sure. So, I think trust is very important because I think people often completely confuse what a Christian ought to show for people to believe things. And often what they think is that a Christian needs to come along with proof. And when you actually dig down, you know, what this idea of proof is, I, often people have this idea of some sort of scientific proof, some knockdown proof. And you realize these just don't exist in life or any of the most important things. A mathematical proof exists in mathematics because you accept some axioms, you work logically through the rules and out pops the result. Same in philosophy, really. But you can't prove such basic things as, you know, that your mother loves you or you can't prove uh, that anything has any value. So it seems to me that, that the category of trust is very important. And so by that, you mean you can show good evidence, but you're not going to be able to demonstrate it with absolute certainty. Well, certainty is another issue that people use in diff different ways. But what I'd say is you can be absolutely rationally convinced of something that you are not able to prove. So you can, I mean, the whole question of personal trust, which we um, exercise all the time, is not something you can prove trustworthiness in advance, but we are regularly trusting our entire lives to people. So what is the basis on which someone decides whether they're going to trust a car manufacturer or an airplane pilot as I flew over here. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so, so we're, we're doing this and it can be very rational, but it's not that you've proven the airplane pilot is not going to do something bad, but, but you rationally trust it. So 
this is also relevant in things that happened in the past. So, for instance, there may be a case of abuse or assault, which is absolutely real, and you're convinced it's real, but you cannot prove it to the canons of a history department. You know, because a history department's going to be, a faculty is going to be quite sceptical about things. And they're always going to say, well, have you got two? Have you got three sources? Have you, you know, tested the bias? That's different from, for instance, convincing a jury uh, that this has taken place, which again, the jury is at a different level of conviction from what you might need personally to trust. So let's say your friend has been assaulted and you are convinced of that. You may be convinced you have enough evidence to trust and you act towards your friends trusting what they've said but that doesn't mean you can prove it to the jury and it certainly doesn't mean you can prove it to the history department so that's where i want to make sure that people understand that the bar should be set in the right place i am saying to people that you can trust the gospels And what I mean by that is you can have a disposition towards them where you treat them as trustworthy. Um, This is entirely rational. In fact, it's the most rational approach. But that's different from saying, I am able to take every single bit within the Gospels and convince a history department in a publicly demonstrable way. I mean, there are some things that... I mean, most things... All sorts of things have happened in the past which you cannot prove happened but they still happened. Right, and you have good reason to trust that that's what took place. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing is is to recognize how much of our knowledge is interpersonal trust. We're actually wired uh, to need to trust. We're interdependent. No well, one, I mean, isn't that yeah. what tradition is? I mean, you think about the education system that you have and how much of that was actually built on trust. You didn't go and research much of the history you were taught. Yeah. And I would say, obviously, you want to be able to critically examine things. But when you ask us, let's say a scientist, what things they believe, a whole load of things that they believe, even as a scientist, are things that they have simply heard from other scientists. So I trust that there is a place called Rockall, you know, which is a isolated uh, rock off the top of Britain. I have never been there. I've never seen it. I've seen alleged photos of such a thing. You can find it on maps, but you know, I haven't proved it with my own personal experience, but it's totally rational for me to trust this. So I think it's recognizing why do I believe there's a place called Rockall? Because my knowledge is socially dependent. I depend on others and it seems a reasonable thing to do. Now, with regards to this book, what what led you to to want to write this? And uh, you know, I'm looking forward to getting into the content of this. But but at first, I'm just curious. You know, what what would lead you to to writing it? Well, I mean, when I came to university in, in my third year, I went through quite a period of doubt. Uh, I mean, I'd come from a Christian background and was encountering people who knew an awful lot more than I did and made a what seemed like a very good case against the Bible. I went searching for answers and then finding answers and then sharing answers. And I suppose from about age 26 onwards, I had wanted to write this book. So, you know, it maybe took 22 years or 21 years before it came out. But I'd been thinking that there was a niche for a short book which lays out the case for trusting the gospels but doesn't presuppose particular knowledge 
So I, I try not to write presupposing knowledge and, and just make sure I introduce things as they go along. doesn't mean you can't go reasonably deep with people, but it does mean that you just need to start with a very general audience and to lay out the case. And so that's, that's what I try to do. One of the things that I love about this book, and I've read a number of books on this topic, but uh, one of the things I like is that it's brief. You don't use a lot of words. You just get right to the point. Uh, And as well, it's very accessible. If I were to critique Christian academics, I would say that oftentimes things are written in a way that is more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, sure. And and I I wrote it, you know, so that I think a a 14-year-old can appreciate it. And, you know, uh, someone who's also in the university system, it's meant to be work either way. Let's jump into some of this content that you get at. And I, I, I really appreciate just how simple you lay out this content. One of those, one of the early things that you jump into the book to talk about is what we can know about Jesus and, and about the New Testament, but particularly the gospels outside of uh, mm-hmm. the New Testament. Yep. What kind of evidence is there out there? Yeah, so, so I mean, there are various references to Christians and Christianity early on. I mean, they're not as early, I think, as the New Testament records. Uh, but yes, within a hundred years of um, of Christ, you, you can get people like Tastus and Pliny and Josephus writing. And so what I do is I try to dive down into those and say, what do we know? Well, what, one of the things we know is that Christianity seems to spread, spread far and fast. Isn't it amazing how far it did spread and how rampant it was? Yeah, and I, th- I think that's it's a significant thing that just the fact that it spread so far makes it hard for the core beliefs to be changing radically later on because it becomes a logistical nightmare to try and change everyone's story. So I think you have to have the core beliefs you know, that Jesus uh, died and rose again and so on, settled there in the beginning. You can't just be inventing the idea that Jesus rose again like 50 years after things have started. It's not just not going to work. One of the things that I found that I find very persuasive of outside writers, such as Josephus, isn't necessarily what he said about Jesus, but what he said about James. Yeah, Uh, sure. And in particular, that James would have been a figure that Josephus would have even told you about mm-hmm. uh, is surprising to me. I mean, that, that yeah. would tell you how popular Christianity must have been for him to want to even mention people like James or John. And then in particular that, that James died for yep. his brother. Yeah. So I, th- I think what we get in Josephus, we get an interesting passage on John the Baptist and we get an interesting passage on Jesus' brother, James. And yes, Jesus' brother, James seems to get executed for, uh, religious reasons. We know from Christian sources he was a leader amongst the early Christians. So putting that together, it seems that yes, he he gets killed because of his Christian uh, faith, and um, and Josephus is a witness to that. So that's it, it's significant. It fits with the New Testament. Do you find the scholars question that? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I, think, I know the Jesus one, there's questions about it was stuff added. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so there are two passages in Josephus where he mentions Jesus. One is this, uh, one that I mentioned, uh, where it's in connection with his brother, James. The other one is a longer one about Jesus and, uh, the scholars are all over the map as they tend to be on all sorts of issues. But what I would say is, you know, you, you can make a good case for both passages being authentically by Josephus. Uh, there are scholars who are happy to accept that 
even the longer passage about Jesus is entirely written by Josephus or that most of it is, you know, there, there are different views on this. I decided to go for this shorter passage from Josephus where, where it's really about James because I think there are fewer people who would dispute that. But of course, in scholarship, everything is going to be disputed by someone. But the fact that there might be one or two doctors who think that smoking isn't bad for your health isn't particularly a reason to follow that idea further. So I, I think the fact that, yes, there are some people who dispute it, that that's just the nature of, of life. You've got to get back and say, well, look, it's in the earliest manuscripts. It's got, it fits the context. It's got the right style. Um, this is not something that's easy to make up. And, you know, you, you lay out your case for, yes, he, why he did that. You know, Christians aren't used to seeing the Gospels as historical, mm-hmm. which is kind of amusing. And, and so often they'll want to know, well, what was said outside of the New Testament? Yep. You know, but why should we trust that the New Testament, particularly the Gospels we're talking about here, are historical? Well, I mean, there, there are various uh, ways you can come at this. One of the arguments I would uh, have is simply, this is the simplest explanation of the data we have. So when you start looking at... Uh, the Gospels, you find they know a lot of stuff. So, for instance, they have this scene where Jesus goes and is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. In John, it still has him going to a garden. And what's interesting is in John, it will describe how he goes over the brook of the Kidron or the Valley of the Kidron. And of course, you know, there is a Kidron Valley and he's, you know, he's going out to the Mount of Olives. And in uh, Matthew and Mark, it will talk about it being called, the garden being called Gethsemane. Well, the thing is, Gethsemane is the local language for oil press, you know, where you're, you're getting, you know, the Mount of Olives. And yet there's never a comment on what Gethsemane means. It's just is the name they give it. So what you realize is whoever the writers are, they've got serious local knowledge. There's language there, there's geography there. And what they're describing is entirely plausible. We can look around uh, the scene where you look at what Jewish sources are telling us about what people did at Passover time in Jerusalem and how you, you know, you can't actually go too far away from uh, Jerusalem because then that won't count. You know, you've got a Sabbath coming up, you all sorts of things where people are generally camping quite close to Jerusalem. All of these things just fit. And it's not that you can prove, therefore, it happened. You just say, but I've got a really simple explanation for these texts. These texts are simply recording what happened. It explains all the data, and it explains it so simply. So I think simplicity is a really important criterion for truth. What's interesting about the simplicity argument, and you present some really fascinating ones in the book, and one of one that I thought was quite interesting were the names that are used. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, there's geographical locations mm-hmm. where the Bible continues is just spot on mm-hmm. and is giving you even insider, you know, somebody who lived there would would know yep. what it was called, and which they get right. But but the one that I thought was really interesting that you bring up is one of those that you just don't even think about is the names of people that are being used. Where the, where yep those actual names that were used at that time period yeah. in that area. Yeah, so, so the characters in the narrative have the right sort of names. And I think it is very interesting. If you read, say, the book of Acts, uh, the fifth book in the New Testament, you'll be coming across people with, you know, different names. You know, you'll, you'll come across 
Alexander, Gallio, all sorts of other names. You read um, the end of Paul's letter to the Romans and you'll come across people with names like Andronicus and so on. And when you read the Gospels, you're coming across people with the names from the Gospel lands. You know, uh, that's what the characters are called. And I, I think it's really... Um, interesting of course you do get an Alexander in, in Mark's gospel but you know that's for some Simon of Cyrene who's out of town and you know you get the more Roman names Alexander and Rufus there so what you find is that the character of of, of names is just right for the situation and people had different sorts of names in different countries across the Roman Empire including Jews had different names we can actually map them and so what we're saying is all four writers are consistent using this pattern of the right source of names. That's significant. Well, one of the things that you bring up is some work that was done where names were categorized at that time and given mm-hmm. a value of what would be most popular. Mm-hmm. You know, and what's interesting is the names that you find in the Bible in their, their frequency of use matches yep. with popularity. Yeah. And that's also what you're finding with the most common names have extra bits added, like Simon Peter. So Simon's the most common Palestinian Jewish male name. And so you have to add something extra to the name because otherwise you're not clear which Simon you're talking about. And you find that the Simons in the Gospels, you know, you'll have Simon the Zealot, you'll have Simon the Leper, you'll have Simon of Cyrene. They get this extra bit in their names, as does the most popular female name, Mary. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. It can add all sorts of characteristics. And so this is what goes on for those names and not for the less popular names. And how do you explain that? You know, the simple explanation is they're just recording what's true. Now, one exception to this that you bring up, which is interesting, is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, his name was a popular one Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, sure. Yet he's not being distinguished. Yeah, so so what you find is, of course, in the narrative, when you're talking about Jesus, on the whole, he's just referred to as Jesus because he's been introduced and it's now telling you about this. That's the right way to do it in narrative. But then the characters in the narrative, uh, they actually do disambiguate him. So, you know, when the servant girl comes up to Peter and says, you know, uh, this man was with Jesus the Galilean, you know, she's actually giving you that extra bit on the name of Jesus to clarify which of various Jesuses she's talking about. So actually the gospels do fit the pattern with the name Jesus. It's interesting when we think about geography and and the names that are used and whether or not, you know, they, they get it right for the time. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of when I was in Israel, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a long time ago, actually. <laughs> I was going to say not that long ago, but it was actually fairly while ago. But I, I'm, I was in, is it, I was in Jerusalem trying to catch a bus to the Sea of Galilee. And I mm-hmm. kept asking people, hey, which bus do I take to the Sea of Galilee? And they kept looking at me saying, the Sea of what? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah. I was quite confused because I'm thinking, you've got hardly any bodies of water here. You know, it's a mm-hmm. desert. Surely mm-hmm. you know which lake I'm talking about. Well, they're like, well, we call it Lake Kinneret. They, they, yeah. A lot of them had no idea that, was, that in the Bible it was referred to mm-hmm. as the Sea of Galilee, which is interesting because in the book you talk about how it's often referred to as the sea, mm-hmm. the way that it's being referred as a local would have. Yes, yeah, so, so um, Luke calls it a lake, but yes, Matthew and Mark call it the sea, you know, and Mark is traditionally thought to have got his information from Peter, who is a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, and you know, Matthew to have been a tax collector in Capernaum on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and yes, 
you know, in, in their world, that was the sea. So I think it's very interesting, you know, the, the way people's perspective is. If uh, traditions are to be trusted, then uh, Luke uh, grew up not far from the Mediterranean. And so he would have <laughs> certainly had a view of the Sea of Galilee being a bit more of a pond. <laughs> Now, when we think about the the New Testament, you know, we've been, thus far, we've been talking about how we can trust it from, for example, the names and places that are being talked about. But when we, when we look and, you know, we're reading the gospels in particular, we want to know, you know, who Jesus was and, and what kind of things that, that Jesus said. We find ourselves into an interesting conundrum. And one of those being, if Jesus is speaking Aramaic mm-hmm. and the gospels are being written into Greek. What kind of concern should we have that, you know, multiple translations are taking place here. First, Jesus is being translated from Aramaic into Greek. And now we're translating it then from Greek into whatever language, you know, we're translating into. Can we trust that Jesus was being translated correctly? Yeah. And there I'd say the answer is uh, yes. The simple thing to do is to trust. Um, that, um, you know, there are all sorts of things, wh- whether it's, uh, let's say, Mao's teaching or Dostoevsky or whoever it is, you know, there are all, all sorts of writers over time who've been translated and people don't normally have major angst that this doesn't work. I mean, the EU, uh, European Union has um, translation going on all the time, uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, no one says, you know, it's all um, the Catholic Church can't hold together because so much gets lost in translation. Actually, you know, um, people issue things regularly in multiple languages. This is this is normal. So Jesus is in a multilingual setting, and he's travelling round. So he's in Capernaum, which is on a major trade route through to the Mediterranean. And uh, what you find there is people get by. He's got two disciples with Greek names, Andrew and Philip. He's got disciples with Hebrew names. He's got disciples with Aramaic names. Whatever language he he speaks, things will be translated. So I don't think we should assume all his teaching was in Aramaic. He's an itinerant speaker. I think that's an interesting point if we could just hone in on that for a moment. Because in the book, you do talk about this. You suggest in the book that there's evidence to demonstrate that Jesus perhaps preached in Greek. Yeah, so so obviously, you know, uh, he's recorded in the Gospels, um, particularly in Mark, as speaking Aramaic to a 12-year-old girl and to a person who's deaf and dumb and at his death, you know, on the cross when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And interestingly, some people don't understand it. (laughs) You know, um, at that context, some people say, is he calling Elijah? So in other words, it's it's not necessarily that Aramaic would have been understood by everyone everywhere. And in Passover time, you have huge numbers of people in Jerusalem. They're coming from round about. They, They come from the diaspora. And if you want to get by, you're going to be rubbing shoulders with people who who speak different languages. If Jesus wants to address a crowd, actually, it's more likely that the Aramaic speakers will know some Greek than that those who are Greek in their identity will have learned Aramaic. When he goes up to um, speak to the 
well, there's the woman, uh, who, a Syrophoenician woman, who is specifically described as being a Greek uh, speaker. So uh, what language is he speaking to this woman? Is he speaking in Punic, you know, the Phoenician form? Or is he speaking Aramaic? No, I think he's speaking Greek. And as he sends out his disciples to different villages, what are they supposed to do? They're not supposed to stick in their local dialect. They are supposed to teach to whoever's there uh, in whatever means they need to communicate to them. You know, going back to that cross comment, I think that's very interesting. And if I follow your logic there, you're saying here he is speaking in Aramaic and the people aren't sure about what he's saying. Yeah, so so, so, so some, clearly some they weren't so, used to Aramaic. So he's been, well, some, some were. He's been crucified by a road um, and they have, uh, you know, the charge over him in Greek and Latin and Hebrew or Aramaic. I mean, the, the people... It, I find it hard to distinguish which, which one's being talked about. But the point is, even the title, the titulus, Over the Cross, is multilingual. He's by a road. It's at a festival time when there are all sorts of people from different backgrounds together by definition. And they're not linguistically uniform. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, uh, and I, th- I think that's something that we often forget, but it reminds me of the, like, for example, the Rosetta Stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, here you have a stone that's giving instruction and it's written in three languages. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great point that we often forget that it would have been multilingual and that Jesus would have been able to communicate most likely in multiple languages in, in yeah, and, and I think it, it would even be necessary. I mean, as a carpenter, or uh, craftsmen, do all of your orders come in from people with a single language? You know, uh, not necessarily. And what if you have to go and build down at the local Galilean capital of Sepphoris where they're, they're making an amphitheater or whatever it is? You might be dealing with masons from different backgrounds, similarly with fishermen. I mean, even with his disciples, I mean, two of them have Greek names. Mm-hmm. Um, he may have even needed to do that even with his disciples. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it seems clear in, in John's gospel that Philip and Andrew or portrayed as Greek speaking they have this interchange with people who are described as Greeks but also there's the worry in John's gospel where people say is Jesus going to go off and teach the Greeks you know well he can't go off and teach the Greeks if he doesn't know Greek so so even the fact that people are thinking about that that he plausibly had a career you know <laughs> away from the locality I, I think um, supports that now when we we think about you know wanting to understand who Jesus is and what he's teaching. And a lot of people will want to know, okay, well, what, what exactly were the words, you know, mm. that Jesus said, you know, you kind of get this red letter edition of, yeah, sure. of you know, what, what did Jesus say? And you make some interesting comments that I had never thought about before with regards to quotation marks mm. and their use in translation. This is something I found quite fascinating that uh, quotation marks were actually a fairly recent invention from the 16th century. They're a recent thing and they distort the way we look at recorded speech because now that we have these marks, which at one level, you know, like many inventions, they seem to make your life easier uh, and that's why you get addicted to them. Uh, (laughs) I got smartphones, you know, is that they offer to distinguish what is quotation from non-quotation in a very simple way. But of course, the moment you do that, you impose extra rules about quotation. For instance, that you're not allowed to omit any word within the sequence without telling people with a dot, 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 or you're not allowed to put a clarifying word in or anything. You've just got to have exactly uh, that sequence. And and so what that does is it, it 
it has an effect on what true reporting is. And my point is that the gospel writers are truly reporting Jesus' speech, but they are doing so in a world before quotation marks. And therefore, what we mustn't do is expect them to follow our rules, which come later. So, yes, they are allowed to drop words out, for instance, in true reporting. You know, that's one of the challenges that I find even for myself, you know, when you pick up the Bible and you're reading, say, for example, the Gospels, we tend to impute a 21st century interpretation, mm-hmm. you know, over this first century document, yep. forgetting that simple things, even like quotation marks mm-hmm. and even the verse and chapter headings, you know, those those yeah, are, sure. those aren't in the original. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's interesting that sometimes we we forget just the simplicity of what's being written, uh, but yet that it's still authentic and that it's still communicating what was, mm-hmm. what was you know, spoken, what was talked about. Yeah. Um, when we think about the way that the Bible was copied, there's an interesting argument that you make in your book that I think a lot of people aren't aware of and that historians have a, a great debt to owe uh, Christians, uh, particularly Christian scribes, mm-hmm. that they didn't just faithfully copy the New Testament, they faithfully copied pagan yeah. documents as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Our that, libraries would be a lot smaller if it wasn't for Christian that's right. scribes. So basically, you know, why do we have any of classical Greek and Latin literature? The answer is, you know, medieval Christian scribes copied it. And whereas the Romans did not do us the favor of passing Etruscan literature uh, to us, you know, the culture that preceded them and the Greeks didn't pass on the culture that preceded them. But yes, you know, Christian scribes did not erase the previous pagan literature. And, you know, I think that's really significant because the narrative, the popular narrative is, oh, the Christians came in and they just burnt and destroyed everything. And of course, there is some basis for that, you know, in in the sense that, yes, pagan temples were destroyed often as things moved over to Christianity. Although you've got to be put that in the whole context of down the ages, loads and loads of architectures being destroyed, and often it was quite recent architecture. So, so you know, we think, oh no, they destroyed these thousands of years old buildings. They didn't. You know, they were destroying things that had just been built. And, and it's more accurate to say they recycled them, isn't it? One of the things I notice when you go to archaeological yeah, sites, yeah, of course, of course, people is, reusing material. Yeah, resources are yeah, premium. Yeah, sure. sure, but you know, I, I don't want to um, whitewash what happened. But we have to say there's there had been a. I mean, although some. Well, a lot of classical literature was lost. Uh, much of it was lost in the classical era already uh, by not being copied further, because if you don't copy something further, it just gets lost. But yes, quite a bit of Greek and Roman literature got taken up through the Middle Ages and and passed down by Christian scribes. I think this is such a powerful argument when you think about it, what was, you know, were they being faithful to copy what actually took place. So mm-hmm. whether it be a pagan source or a Christian source, are they faithfully writing it out, even if it is an embarrassing detail? And when you think about the apostle Peter, for example, there's plenty to want to white rush or to smooth over, mm-hmm. you know, where he puts his foot in his mouth. He, mm-hmm. you know, he, he abandons, you know, he gets a lot of stuff wrong, but yet you get a faithful. Yeah. Recording. Well, I think you've got to think about, you know, what it means to be a scribe. You train to be a scribe and, the idea is to do your job is is you need to copy faithfully whatever you're copying and so when you think of these scribes as essentially clerical then 
of course they are waking up in the morning wanting to do a reasonably good job uh, of things and uh, whether we're dealing with medieval monks who might be in a cell copying things by hand onto leather all in the way that the leather's got to be prepared the ink's got to be prepared i mean it's back-breaking work they don't have the leisure to go off and just create some forgery or whatever i mean this is an incredibly expensive thing that would do them no good apart from get them sacked by the abbot what's the motive behind this sort of thing and people often haven't really thought about the mechanics of of why yes you are generally going to get decent copying uh one last thing to discuss you know our time's kind of fleeting here and it's been great talking with you on this subject lots more things that we could talk about but i know Uh, One of the topics that often comes up in New Testament studies, particularly when we think about can we trust the Gospels, is when were they written? You know, were they Mm -hmm. written early to the time of events or or late? Yeah, and and that's where I don't declare dates uh, because the Gospels don't come with dates on them. I mean, there are some manuscripts that uh, hazard dates on the Gospels and usually put them in the first couple of decades, really, of Christianity. But my basic argument is these are first generation documents so it may be in the case of john uh, that it's written towards the end of a long life but if luke is written by luke who is a companion of paul who traveled with paul in the 50s that's going to put some chronological limits on things likewise if mark is written by someone who knew peter if matthew is written by someone who was collecting tax around the year 30 again it puts limits uh, sorry if matthew is written by a tax collector you know from the time of jesus it puts chronological limits on when those gospels can be written so i'm happy to leave it at that people other people can find numbers i won't well one of the things that you that you mentioned though that i think is interesting is i i find it quite persuasive that the new testament doesn't talk about the destruction of the temple mm-hmm. uh now a lot of scholars, though, aren't going to want to accept a pre-70 AD sure. dating because Jesus prophesies that the temple yep. is going to be destroyed. So really, in, in many ways, that miracle, if you will, mm-hmm. is the limitation on a lot of dating. Then, yes. So, so obviously, I mean, there are people who might predict that if you fight the Romans, your world is going to be destroyed and that's going to include the temple. So in that sense, uh, it is possible without appealing to the supernatural prophecy to see at least from the year 66 onwards when, you know, uh, the Jewish revolt against the Romans has started, that uh, the temple could be destroyed. But yes, uh, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus is predicted as talking uh, about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And I think someone's presuppositions come into this. Sometimes people say, I just can't believe that anyone can predict that well. And so they have, therefore, to say that the words were put on Jesus' mouth later. Since I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I have no problem with him actually having knowledge of the future. So I'm not constrained in that way, and therefore I can interpret the evidence consistent with all the other evidence that these texts are early. One of the things I think is interesting uh, that would challenge people who would want to say, oh, it's miraculous, I uh, can't accept it. You would think, though, that if it was added later, and it did in fact happen, mm-hmm. that there would be impetus to want to actually say, hey, look, he, he said this, and in fact it took place. Yeah. Uh, which so, you don't Which you yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, you can try and make mountain arguments that um, the way it's written is more plausible if it's early. My only thing is, you know, that I think... Those who are biased against the supernatural will won't be persuaded by any 
<laughs> such thing. So, you know, I'm preferring to make the case that, you know, you can trust what's there. It's perfectly rational for you to do that. Your mind's functioning well and it's if you're wanting to avoid the supernatural that you're having to do more jumping around you know as we come to a conclusion on our time together you know if there was one maybe two things that you would say hey this has been for me the most persuasive personally to say you know what i can trust the gospels what what would you say i would say uh that obviously um the person of Jesus, I, th- I think he's a phenomenal and the, is the unifying explanation for all the data and things hang together there. I mean, who could invent this guy? And I think it's the converging lines of argument, not just from the reliability of the Gospels themselves, but also the argument from prophecy, from the coherence of, of Scripture. All of these things come together in a mutually reinforcing way. I, actually, I'd say that you know, after reading your book, that's one of the things that I really was struck by is just the cumulative case really begins to just mount and you, mm-hmm. you, you get that sense, wow, this is trustworthy. Now, hey, if somebody would like to know more about your work, other books you've written, or would like to go deeper, where would, where would you send them? Well, I'd say you know, tinderhouse.com is our, our website. We've got a, a free online magazine, which is trying to get people to go deeper with the Bible uh, called Inc. So Tinderhouse Inc. makes think. I would also, you know, say one of the best things to do is just make sure you read the Bible an awful lot. Uh, There's so much there. Uh, In the beginning of your book, in the preface, you actually recommend a couple books that Mm -hmm. that were influential for you or that you've that you've really enjoyed yeah so i mean i i I think obviously craig blomberg's uh book on the historical reliability of the gospels and he's written one now on the reliability of the new testament these are great they're much longer books and they go into all sorts of details i don't because that's not my aim my aim is to write a book that can be your first book on this subject so i think his work would be worth reading yeah, if you want to if you want to go deeper, those are there's some great uh, resources that you mentioned there at the beginning of the book. I highly recommend this book. Can we trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams? Great book to read to give to a friend. Very accessible. Thank you for joining us on the Apologies Canada podcast. Pleasure. And uh, we will come back, listeners, with more things to think about. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.